0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, March 31st, 2011. Gonna be doing our light edition today. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah, I had a previous engagement. I'll hopefully give you details on that tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Once a week, I try to do a segment that I call The, the Light Edition. It's one topic, and I would usually try to find good lectures uh, Good teaching, good instruction to play on our light edition for the week. This uh, week is no different. And in fact, what I'm going to be doing here, and I'm going to do this without commercial interruption, so... Yeah, uh, yeah, we're not going to be doing our normal thing a little bit here, and that just has to do with time constraints because of uh, my my schedule at the moment. You'll, I'll give you details probably on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So, but if not tomorrow, then then you know early next week, I promise to give you some of the de- details because it involves some of the seeker-driven leadership, and so I'll uh, I'll, I'll fill you in later. So, uh, what we're going to be doing here is we're going to be playing a, a lecture. Uh, delivered by Michael Horton, entitled The Front Page God, and uh, this was a, a series, this is part of the series of lectures that he did on uh, the gospel-driven life, and so this particular lecture lecture is entitled The Front Page God, and like I said, we're going to play this without commercial interruptions, and at the end of this... Uh, it's just gonna go straight to uh, to the uh, ending music. So r- remind you ahead of time. Fighting for the faith is listener supported radio. Yeah, you know the shtick. And and those of you listening to the podcast, you've you've already heard my silly. pleas. anyway. With that, here is Michael Horton, the front page God. Thank you,
1: Pastor, and thanks to all of you who uh, put this conference together, and for all of you who came out, even uh, in during the rain. I was telling david that uh on the drive over here that that in Southern California this would uh, be an empty room because of course it would be a state catastrophe, and the news would be reporting that uh, the the uh, roads are are uh uh flooded uh they they cannot be used because they're moist and uh you know I come up here this is the whole drive uh i, I you know, David and I would be talking and then I'd just sort of stop. Sorry, what, what were you saying? It's beautiful. Now, I, I understand why all of California is moving up here. Uh, it's absolutely breathtaking. Thank you for uh, letting me come here and talk about uh, the good news. I wrote a book called uh, Christless Christianity uh, about a year ago that focused, well, not quite a year ago, about six months ago, that focused on the bad news. Uh, the uh, sort of, a, from my vantage point, the state of the church drawing on various sources for that, not only theologians, but sociologists and, and others. And uh, I couldn't wait to write this second book, Gospel Driven, so that I could focus just on the good news and sort of a, a where do we go from here? What do we put in the place of Christless Christianity? And uh, this is my first opportunity to talk about it. Uh, I've just sent the final... Uh, draft off to the, the publisher, and uh, I now have the opportunity to sort of flesh these thoughts out with you, and so I hope you'll give me feedback on it, and I hope you find it, uh, find it helpful. Let me begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3. I'm not going to be expositing this passage. I'm going to be sort of introducing this theme and asking the question, why the heart and soul of the Christian faith is called good news. The Apostle Paul, in this seminal chapter, says to the Corinthians, "For I delivered to you as of first importance, a first, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas." And then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared me. We all remember where we were at momentous uh, occasions. Uh, many of you here probably remember where you were when it was announced. Tragically, that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. There may even be some people here who remember what it was like to receive the news of victory in Europe. Uh, My uh, uh, best memory of breaking news, of course, uh, like many of you, most fresh in our minds, is September 11th. We saw the Twin Towers collapsing. News, if it's big enough, can change your world. It can alter the landscape of your belief system. It can transform not only the way you think, but the way you live. If the news is big enough, it has the power to to create a new horizon of existence and a new set of expectations. We live in a world of 24-hour reporting. We're becoming news junkies. Uh, It seems to be difficult to get away from the news, to get away from the headlines. Besides being informed about the events shaping our world, we long to be a part of something larger than ourselves. Something that makes sense of our own lives. Maybe we find our own lives a little trivial, a little boring. And and maybe they become more significant if they're placed in a context that's a little larger. And I think that's one of the reasons we gravitate toward the headlines. But as important as many of these events certainly are, in most cases they come and go. And as weeks, perhaps even days, pass, we forget what they were. And even though they caught our momentary attention, we're back to normal. We're back to doing what we were doing before. And the same thing happens in the church. Uh, we're so easily distracted from the headline, especially if we've heard it over and over. We think we know it. We think we've got the main headlines down. It's so easy for us then to turn the big story into a back page story. And that's what I think we've done. That's why I talk about that at length in Christless Christianity. I, I don't think it's so much that uh, we are abandoning the Christian faith, in mainstream American Christianity today, as much as being distracted by other things. And sometimes those other things are even good. Sometimes those other things are helpful. Sometimes those are things that Christians and churches should be interested in, should be involved with, and yet subtly, over time, they displace the centrality of Christ and Him crucified. We begin to take that for granted. Well, our people know that. They grew up Christians. You needed the gospel, the good news, when you got saved, but that was a long time ago. Now get busy. And so the rest of the Christian life really is filled with exhortations, is filled with programs, is filled with uh, things to do to get busy and change the world, to transform yourself and to transform the world around you. We're always, therefore, suckers for the big next thing. Always looking for something other than that headline to grab us and to move us forward. Long before CNN, the Bible called the heart of the Christian message good news. Good news. Not only in terms of its content, but in terms of its delivery. The content is just of a certain nature that the only thing you can call it is news. There's good advice, there's good instruction in in the scriptures, also out there in the world. But why is it that the heart of the Christian message is called good news? News isn't something that you contribute to. (laughs) You know, as people say, at least good reporters say, my job is to report the news, not to make the news, or to be the news. And increasingly in the church, what we're What we're seeing is is an erosion of that conviction. We're becoming the news. The focus is being placed on us and our activity rather than on God and His activity, which has the power alone to create a new people out of nothing. Some of you remember uh, Walter Cronkite closing his broadcasts. I remember this as a kid. Well, that's the way it is on this date, September 12, 1978, or whatever it was. you remember that? That's the way it is? (laughs) Uh, You know, Walter Cronkite was a celebrity sort of off camera, but you kind of got the impression that he took the news business very seriously, and he really thought that he was giving you the news that that day was just important to report. Not saying he didn't have biases. Of course he had biases. But he thought it was important to talk about the news rather than talk about himself. Today, according to one news network, it's all the news you can use. Now that's a, that's a subtle but very important shift from that's the way it is on this date to all the news you can use. That shift is really from an objective state of affairs reporting on things that have happened simply because they are intrinsically important to a narcissistic preoccupation with pragmatic and therapeutic well-being. What will make me happy? How does this affect me? Never mind all of the drowning victims in the tsunami. What about, how does this affect my life? How will this change the prices that I pay At the pump. Should I feel sad or should I feel threatened? Should I feel secure? How should I feel? And we look to the media to tell us how we should feel. People used to trust Cronkite because he didn't make himself the news. And now people watch a lot of the cycles of 24-hour Reporting precisely because they have their favorite celebrity reporter or celebrity commentator. And now it's just hard to tell the difference between news and entertainment, isn't it? And you have this, depending on your politics, you gravitate around this person in that network or this person in that network. And, oh, this is my guy. This is my gal. Boy, I like this person. I like where they're coming from. And they become celebrities. And the same thing is happening in the church. It's not the news so much as the experience that they project. The the world that they evoke for us. The way they make us feel. Unique among religions, however, Christianity is a report. It's not a claim about something that works. It's not a claim about something that makes us feel better. It's not a claim that that promises to uh, uh, smooth out all of the rough places in our lives. In fact, you can expect if you become a Christian to have a little rougher. Really, Christianity is a claim about something that happened. It's a news story. Just. As we heard there from 1 Corinthians 15. That which is of first importance for the Apostle Paul is not the transformation of the Roman Empire by Christian activity. Of first importance is not bringing families together in the Roman Empire where there was so much divorce and corruption and so forth. It's important as an outcome as that is. The main purpose was not to bring psychological well being and wholeness to people, shattered lives, picking up the pieces and putting people back together again. Those are all outcomes. Those are all you know, dealing with the, 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 the symptoms of sin and death. Jesus Christ came to deal with the root problem, the root cause of all of that, and that's why it's good news. He, he actually accomplished everything for which the Father sent Him. He accomplished the mission Himself. And so Christianity is a claim that during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Jesus was crucified outside of the center city of Jerusalem as the sin-bearing substitute for his people and after three days was raised bodily and was seen by many people. That's the report. That's the good news. The arguments for the resurrection itself are eminently reasonable. We well, don't have time to go through them now, uh, but they're they eminently reasonable. And yet, on the other hand, Paul says that the gospel itself is foolishness to those who are perishing. Well, Why is that? Is that because uh, you just have to be stupid to be a Christian? You just have to sort of uh, turn your mind off and say, well, I'm going to take this leap of faith because I need something big in my life, or I... I sort of need this spiritual side filled. No, Paul says that it's foolishness to those who are perishing, not because the claim itself is unreasonable, but because people willfully suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They refuse to believe a reasonable claim because they're looking for something else. The Jews are looking for signs and wonders, Paul says. And the Greeks are looking for wisdom. How to have a better life. The Greeks were obsessed with how to live the good life. You know, between extremes. Don't Don't be too careless, but also don't be too scrupulous. So how do you live in between those two? So you don't ruin your health and destroy other people around you. And yet, at the same time, you have fun and you enjoy yourself and you enjoy life. How do you live that kind of good life? That was the obsession of the Greeks. And people would come to town from all over the place, especially Corinth, and entertain the crowds on the lecture circuit with uh, how how to buy a life with no money down. You know, how to have this happy life. They would compete for crowds over this question. They were called the sophists. And Paul says the gospel isn't like that. The gospel is an announcement. The gospel isn't therapy. The gospel isn't a a pragmatic plan that we can put into use for our own improvement. The gospel is an announcement that rocks our world. It's an announcement about something that has happened in actual history. To the extent that we remain pilgrims, to the extent that we remain these people who are by nature bent in on ourselves, as Augustine put it nicely, we will find this gospel strange. Well, I became a Christian twenty years ago. Well, actually, you're becoming a Christian today. You're becoming a Christian tomorrow. We're 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 being saved, and we're still getting used to this crazy, odd, surprising news that we have heard. That is totally counterintuitive. Ask people on the street what religion is for. And how long will it take before you think you'll run into somebody who says to forgive us our sins and reconcile us with a holy God? I haven't heard that one on Oprah lately. Now everybody's for religion. Everybody's for spirituality. They just don't like doctrine and they don't like particular churches and they don't like to be reined in by having to believe certain things and live in a way that is consistent with those convictions. Basically, the world doesn't want to be saved. And if we accommodate to the world on on that one, we're going to make the gospel something other than what Paul said was of first importance. You know news when you really hear it. It's, it 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 alters your 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 whole life not just your thinking but but your whole world think of Saul the arch persecutor of the church getting on his horse for another purge of Christians and then he was thrown on his off of his horse by the appearance of Jesus Christ himself in a vision saying Saul Saul why are you persecuting me? And as a result of that vision Paul's whole horizon was altered through that experience and through the subsequent teaching he received from Jesus Christ himself the ascended lord Paul came to realize that he didn't really understand God's plan not even his plan for Israel he was trained under Gamaliel the second he was a pharisee of Pharisees when he says that to the Philippians he's not exaggerating he was a pharisee of Pharisees he was a scholar of scholars among the Jews. And now he realized he had everything wrong. He misunderstood everything that was happening right now in Jerusalem. Christ was establishing his kingdom on earth. The Messiah had come. And he was trying to snuff it out. And so he tells the Philippians, That even though he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, more zealous than his colleagues in commitment to the law, he had now come to see his righteousness as dung. Everything that he had accumulated by his own zeal. Everything he had worked for. Everything on his spiritual resume. He said, I now take from the asset column and move to the debit column. It's all a pile of dung. That's what it's worth. But you know what? That that, that humiliation, realizing that, 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 the devastating realization of that fact is not worthy of being compared to the good news that we have in Christ. I count it all as dung, he says, in order to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Everything in Christ. And from then on, Paul began to think not in terms of himself as the headliner, with God having a supporting role for Saul the Avenger. Saul the Defender of God. But rather he saw himself as a supporting actor in God's unfolding drama. God was the headliner now. Paul and his fellow apostles knew that they were by nature like the rest of us, curved in on themselves, bent in, spiritual scoliosis, couldn't look up, couldn't look outside of themselves. And that's how we're born. We're born into the world looking into ourselves, you know, as as babies. Gimme, 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 gimme. We're, We're always thinking about ourselves. And we're closed in on that concern about our happiness and our well-being until something happens outside of us that draws us out and we look at something that is more important than our immediate needs Something that concerns us but isn't about us. It's interesting that the biblical writers chose the world gospel. Good news. The heart of most religions is good advice. And it's true, you can, if you compare Christianity to the world's religions, there are some significant differences, uh, as far as it goes, but in the big, on the big point of morality, uh, Christianity doesn't teach anything radically different about loving God or the gods and our neighbors. Uh, before Jesus issued the Great Commandment, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Moses said it. It's in the Hammurabi Code of ancient pagans. It's in all sorts of societies that have never heard of Moses or Jesus. That's because it's planted in us by creation. As Paul says in Romans 1 and 2, it's in our conscience. And so we will pack things out if we tell people how to. You know, that's what people gravitate toward by nature. I'm not dead in trespasses and sins. I'm wayward. You know, I lack a few instructions. I, I need a game plan. I, you know, I, like, a, like a diet. I, I, need, I know I can lose this. I just need a, a good game plan. Show me something that works and I'll use it. And so God becomes the sort of supporting actor in our life movie instead of our being supporting actors in his. The thing is that nothing that happens inside of you is good news. Because the good news is about something that happened outside of you 2,000 years ago. Good things do happen to you from the inside out. But the gospel itself is not news about you and what has happened inside of you. The good news itself is strictly about Jesus of Nazareth and what God did in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the news. The more we chase experiences and transformation and all of these things that are part of our being bent in on ourselves, the more we chase those things, the more burned out we get. Because we're distracted from the one thing that really can bring change. The the one thing that really can satisfy our longing to be a part of the big story. The story of redemption. The one thing that really does explain why it is we feel symptoms of guilt. And now what God has done about that. The one story that can solve all of those problems. Nothing new can be found inside of us, And so there can be no new news there. And so if we're we're always judging truth in terms of how it makes us feel or... What we already believe or experience within ourselves, we will close ourselves off to the most disorienting, surprising, and disturbing, but also wonderful news that we could ever possibly hear. Now, oh, my God isn't like that. My God would never do that. You know, we read that, uh, we hear that uh, sometimes from professing Christians as we're talking about certain difficult passages in the scriptures. Well, that—that's not my God. Well, then your God is an idol. So I just read the passage. I haven't even commented yet. I haven't even offered my interpretation. I've had, Chris, had conversations with Christians where I just just read a passage. Romans 9 comes to mind. And, uh, and, well, that my God would never do that. Well, maybe you better abandon your God because only this God can save you. This gospel comes to us not as a task for us to fulfill, not as a mission for us to accomplish, but as a report that we are to believe. And it means that God is the headliner. God is the headliner. God is not a religion page deity. In all of the pagan religions of the world, you have politics, you have the arts, you have culture, you have, you have everyday life, and then there's this spiritual aspect of life that is all inner, it's all about the private uh, life, the life of the inner soul, and that's where the gods or God comes into the picture. And there's an important place for religion. That's why there's a religion page in the newspaper. Well, not every day. Once a week. It needs to be in there. It's a, it, it's a, it's a big part of a lot of people's lives. I don't know why it is. I don't know why the religion page is there. I don't know why. You know, most religion stories aren't worth reading. They're almost always about us. They're not very exciting. Christianity puts God on the front page. In Christianity, in the, in the proclamation of the gospel that we find in the Old and the New Testaments, God is the headline. He's not on the back page. He's not on the religion page. God is on the front page. This is the headline. Think of, of what it would be like if major news organizations I, I don't know, we're coming close to it anyway, but just... Uh, 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 this is, unfortunately, these analogies are becoming more plausible Uh, But just imagine what it would be like if uh, a major news organization thought it could survive today by by reporting its hunches or feelings. Um, Someone comes on television, lots of makeup and and well-groomed, and says, with almost a tear, the camera almost catches a glint of a tear in the eye and says, I really feel deeply that the economy is going to improve. It, 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 I'm not going to listen to anyone else who refutes that, because I really believe it. I feel it deep down in my bones that the economy is going to improve. You know, Not even on the sports page do you have people say... Well, I think Merriman is going to come back really strong for the Chargers this year because, well, you know, you just... Uh, uh, I feel it. There's, a, there's just something in the air. But for some reason, when it comes to the religion page, we go soft. We think that that's how religion is. Religion belongs in the heart, in the private sphere of my personal relationship with Jesus. It's not public. It's not about a public announcement that is true for everyone everywhere. It is a private relationship. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me I'm His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. <laughs> Mary Baker Eddy could have written that. That's not news. That's exuding. That's just emoting. That's not news. Wrapping ourselves in a cocoon of inwardness, we feel cozy in our own personal cult of experience. We've got to be drawn out of that. Religion is as dangerous as atheism. To killing this news from being heard. It smothers it. It looks away from God and what He has done, turning our focus back on ourselves and our own inner life. It doesn't really matter whether the report is true for a lot of Christians. The really important thing is how it has helped me, how it has helped me to cope, how it has brought my family together. When people talk about giving their personal testimony, that's often what you hear. I'm not saying there's no place for telling your neighbors and your friends, What has happened to you as a result of of becoming a Christian? Although there's always a a danger there that that they might be watching you next year. Uh, You know, you're going to need the good news. You're going to need the good news as much as they are when that happens. Whatever it is, and it's going to happen. You know, it, it, it... we, we need a report. We need something that is outside of us, that confronts us, that disorients us, that pulls us out of ourselves. We need someone to give us a report. G.K. Chesterton, the English poet, satirist, friend of people like Oscar Wilde uh, and uh, others he often sparred with, said that uh, nihilism, nothingness you know, coming from no special origin, going to no particular destiny outside of what we have chosen for ourselves. That's the, that's the heart of nihilism. And Chesterton said that, that nihilism really is the heart of our age. I think that's true, and I think that nihilism is part of the narcissism. See, this is the downside. You make yourself the center, cutting yourself off, your umbilical cord, to reality off and live in your own private world of inner spirituality or inner morality or inner emotions or whatever. And you really don't have any sense of connection to anyone or anything outside of you. Ironically, by making your life movie the plot, you lose your own plot. You lose your own identity, your own sense of meaning, Fullness that you were looking for by turning within. Friedrich Nietzsche said at the end of the 19th century that my life has no aim it is evident from the accidental nature of its origin. That I can posit an aim for myself is another matter. See, that's the essence of nihilism. And that's what we struggle with even in the church today. When we talk endlessly about Self-transformation, you know, as, as, as if God's story of election, creation, fall, redemption, incarnation, cross, resurrection, ascension, return of Christ, and consummation of all things. As if that story isn't the story that gives us the plot line from origin to destiny. So that we can posit an aim for ourselves. So that we can order off the menu the kind of life that we would like to have. Chesterton described a newspaper article he had read uh, recently which opined that, quote, Christianity, when stripped of its armor of dogma, as, says Chesterton, who should speak of a man stripped of his armor of bones, Turned out to be nothing but the Quaker doctrine of the inner light. To be written today. Oprah, this is you where know, well, you've got to look within you. Don't look to any outside authorities. it, it You know, look to a little spark inside of you, a little God within you. He says, now if I were to say that Christianity came into the world especially to destroy the doctrine of the inner light, that would be an exaggeration. But it would be very much nearer the truth. The Romans of the first century were advocates of the inner light. However, of all horrible religions, the most horrible is the worship of the God within. Christianity came into the world first in order to assert with violence that a man had not only to look inwards, but to look outwards. To behold with astonishment and enthusiasm in history, a divine company and a divine captain. The only fun of being a Christian was that a man was not left alone with his inner light, but definitely recognized an outer light, fair as the sun, clear as the moon, terrible as an army with banners. We don't know what's good for us. We don't know what we really need. The Bible isn't a collection of timeless principles offering gentle, inspiring thoughts for the day. It's not a resource manual for our self-improvement. Rather, it's a dramatic story that unfolds from Genesis to Revelation with God as the headliner telling us how He Himself has overcome our sin and disobedience and reconciled us to Himself so that there will be peace, justice, holiness, and righteousness in all the earth one day. And the center of that story is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. There are no Bible heroes. Name one of the the great heroes of the Bible and let's go back to the narrative that describes their life. They all turned out to be scoundrels of some sort or another, just like us. God was always saving them in spite of themselves. That's why God is the headliner. God grabs all of the headlines. You think the story is about Joseph, but it's not really about Joseph. You think it's about Abraham, but it's not really about Abraham. It it starts to look like it's about Moses, but it's not really about Moses. Moses doesn't even make it into the promised land. And God's still running. Well, Moses... God's still running. History forward. Fulfilling his promise. God can't wait to get to Golgotha and the empty tomb. One day, Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's sidekick, came to him and uh, confessed his sins again. He was always wearying, just as Luther himself had worn out several confessors in his monastery. Philip Melanchthon wore out Luther, and Luther wasn't as good at handling it when it came from someone else. Now you're messing with my time. And... uh Melanchthon kept coming with these, these little sins. These little, uh, uh, um, you know, just his conscience was always disturbed. And Luther finally said, took him by the shoulders and said, Philip, the gospel is completely outside of you. Get your head out of yourself and look to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And then walk. You see, that's one of the reasons I think why we don't have a lot of vital Christian walking in the church today, because we have a lot of exhortations to walk, but the good news is what gets us up off our feet. What is more difficult to say, Jesus said, "Your sins are forgiven, or to a man who cannot walk, get up take, up your, take your bed and, and walk." The hardest thing in the world to solve, not debt is not broken marriages, is not difficult life experiences. The hardest thing in the world to do is for a holy God to forgive sin. And he's done it. That's the good news. And our lives begin to take on significance, precisely because they're not the headline, but now take their place in the headline that reads, in Christ, instead of in Adam. The God of the Bible is an outdoor God. He would like Oregon. He's, a, he, he's not an inside God. He's not an indoor pet. He's an outdoor God. He likes to find us where we least expect it, in the ordinary. Where do we find God? In a burning bush. Where do we find God? In a feeding trough in Bethlehem. Where do we find God? With blood dripping down and flies, buzzing around his corpse as he is bleeding for our sins. Where do we find God? Not where religion and spirituality rise up to him in glory and triumph and victory, but where he descends to us in humiliation, apparent defeat for us and for our salvation. The central context of God's relationship with human beings in the Bible is a covenant. While all of the nations had political treaties, just as we do today, God is the one who adapted the political treaties to his relationship with Israel. And so really it wasn't a religion so much as it was a political uh, 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 relationship. I will be your suzerain and you will be my vassal, or I will be your God and you will be my people. God liberated Israel from Egypt and then gave, him, uh, gave them his name. And, and this is the kind of relationship that we have. The nations have their gods as witnesses to these secular treaties, but in this treaty, God himself is the, the party giving the treaty, making the treaty. You see, he's not going to be consigned to the religion page. He's not going to be like uh, Queen Elizabeth here and cut ribbons and kiss babies. He's not going to, to sort of wave to people and, and represent, symbolize all the best of our empire. He's not going to, uh, he, he's not going to, to make us feel really excited uh, as, as our uh, troops go by. God is not there to make us happy about being who we are. And even if Israel, even if if Israel turns its back on God, God says, I will send your enemies against you to destroy you. Israel, Israel, not just the nations, has God to worry about. God is the headliner. He's not a pet. He's not on the back page. He's not a God. He is the God who made heaven and earth. And that's why this treaty has as its background the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 to make the point that the God of Israel is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. Invisible and visible. There is no power. There is no Lord. There is no God. Other than this God who created the heavens and the earth. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, it all belongs to God. All the headlines ultimately find their source in God. God doesn't sit on the sidelines as a witness, occasionally dabbing in secular affairs. Rather, God claims the whole sphere of history as the place where he will work out his saving promise in Israel for the world. And he gives Israel his personal name. The context for God giving his personal name in Exodus 3 is this war between Lord Pharaoh and Lord Yahweh. This is the contest between the two. And Lord Pharaoh strikes down the firstborn of Yahweh. God returns the volley with striking down the firstborn of Egypt's son. Every one of the plagues is God's mockery of the false gods of Egypt. The god Hopi of the, of the Nile uh, is, is uh, the river god. Every All of our life comes from you, O Hopi. We are uh, uh, indebted to you for all of the fertility that we've received. Thank you for the great harvest that we've had this year, O Hopi. And in that plague, the Nile turns to blood as if God satirically were to say, "This killed him. You like Hecht? You like Hecht, the frog god? I'll give you frogs. What all the plagues are? God mocking the pantheon of Egypt, and ultimately Lord Yahweh wins over Lord Pharaoh. This is this is the stuff of which movies are made. I mean, this is epic. This is the greatest story ever told. This is a back page story. This is more interesting than you. I don't know how you became a Christian. That's wonderful. I'd love to talk about that. That would, But if this isn't true, that's boring. This is the story that creates all of the particular stories we have of our walk with the Lord, of our personal experience with Christ. In Isaiah 45, God declares, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. By Myself I have sworn. I swear to Me. There is no one higher. And there is no oath more secure than the one God swears by Himself. By Myself I have sworn. From My mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. It's going to go out like an arrow and it's not going to come back to me like a boomerang. It's going to do its job. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And it is that name, the name of Yahweh, here expressly delivered in Isaiah 45 that is handed to a rabbi who walked the shores of Galilee, whose father was a carpenter. Jesus of Nazareth, is given the name which is above every name. Higher than any name that is in heaven or on earth so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so that's what we do when we come together to worship. We are invoking that clause in the treaty that says, "If you call on the name of the great King, I will rescue you. Here is my name. This is my card. Call me if you need me. Call me. Call on my name. This is my name that you will use." And it wasn't, as in the pagan nations, a a sort of talisman that where you could control the deity if you knew his name. Rather, it was a a political pledge, a political guarantee. If you call on my name, I promise you I will come running to rescue you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Like the Old Testament feasts, the great events celebrated by Christians have to do with God's work. Things that God has accomplished in this unfolding history. We celebrate the sun's becoming flesh. Christmas. The crucifixion. Good Friday. His resurrection from the dead. Good Friday. Or uh, Easter. We celebrate the ascension. There just isn't any place in the calendar for you. There's no place in the calendar for the American church in the 21st century. There is no place. For any of us, in that calendar, we're celebrating all of the things that God has done for us and for our salvation. Now, if that doesn't get us off our feet, to embrace each other in warm love and fellowship. You know, we're all, we need more fellowship in our church. We need more this. We need, we need to get out there more. We need it. Yes, all of that is probably It's always true in every church. But what we really need is news that makes that happen. News that's big enough to drive us out of ourselves and into each other's arms and out into the world. A lot of you will remember Howard Hughes. Stories of, uh, of Howard Hughes. A tall, dark, and handsome. Aviator. Uh, inventor. Extraordinary tycoon who, who rose to international fame and he uh, liked to travel from resort to resort and uh, often buying the resort because they couldn't accommodate his needs. Uh, like 3,000 uh, gallons of a particular brand, a particular flavor of a particular brand of ice cream that a resort failed to find for him. So he had it flown in and he bought the resort so he could be absolutely sure that he would receive that regularly. And Insomniac, uh, he bought the Las Vegas TV station so that he could have twenty four hour uh, programs and uh, then he bought the desert inn where he was where he was staying and uh, he lived out the last four years of his life in the Bahamas at his Xanadu resort, only speaking to his top lieutenants and his now alienated wife by phone because everything else was contaminated and so He had plastic everywhere in his penthouse. He had plastic gloves on, and he would never leave his room. His hair grew uh, long. You've probably seen pictures of him. His hair grew long. His fingernails uh, grew. He never had them them clipped. He went insane. And in sharp contrast to his previous 6'4 stature, he weighed 90 pounds at his death. And his body could only be identified by fingerprint analysis. The man who had boasted that he had been born on Christmas Day attracted the gaze only of the prurient gossip magazines toward the end of the day. Tragic story of Howard Hughes echoes in my mind as I think about another mogul, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, also known as Nebuchadnezzar the Great, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, the king calls for Daniel to interpret his latest dream. And the proud ruler had built the hanging gardens, one of the wonders of the world, and this vast army as he's, as he's parading on the roof of his, of his palace looking down. says, isn't this the great Babylon which I have built by my power and for my glory? And immediately what Daniel prophesied came true. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like birds' claws. Far closer to our own time is Saddam Hussein, who invoked Nebuchadnezzar as his great hero. But where Hussein was found hidden in a hole on a farm and was eventually executed for crimes against humanity in 2006, Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. <laughs> See? Finally took his eyes. This is what the Westminster Larger Catechism means when it says The preaching of the Word of God by the preaching of the Word of God the Holy Spirit drives us out of ourselves to cling to Christ. At the end of that the days, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He had literally lost his mind by focusing narcissistically on himself, having no story but the the life movie he had made for himself, and now called out of himself, humiliated, looking outside of himself, his sanity is restored. What we're doing in our culture today is insane. It's foolishness. This narcissism, this preoccupation with ourselves, even in Christian ways, is foolishness when there's something far grander, something far greater outside of us. The story that God is telling. Together with his sanity, Nebuchadnezzar's counselors and nobility returned to him. And we read that he was again established in his kingdom with even greater esteem than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right, And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God's an outdoorsman. God is a front page God. He claims the whole of history. And that means that none of us is a master. close with this observation, the period in the Wake of the Enlightenment, leading all the way through, really, uh, to recent times, was dominated by the idea of the Master. If only we could master the world. And you had different nations and empires and armies deciding what that would look like. But our goal was to master the world, to be masters of the universe. And now in reaction to that, as all of those utopian dreams have crumbled and millions of people are left dead, we're paralyzed today. A lot, of, a lot of young people have no faith, no confidence that there is any such thing as truth anymore. That any news, especially this good, could possibly be true. And it's disguised as humility. But it, it's really an unwillingness to believe anything again. An unwillingness to believe anything other than the choices that I make. The choices that I'm in control of. And so we've moved from being masters To being tourists. A little bit of this. A little bit of that dabbling over here. My life has no origin. It has no destiny. But in between I can make all sorts of myriad choices to authenticate that I'm alive. I. Meaningless. Nowhere man living in my nowhere land. Making all my nowhere plans for nobody. But I'm alive. I've made a lot of choices. I've shopped. If the concept of the modern self was that of a master, and today the dominant sense of self is that of a tourist, the Bible calls it to be pilgrims. Looking for a better city. Looking for a far better homeland. You see, we know where we've come from. We know where we're going. But we're not masters. We're not the headliners here. And we don't know exactly every aspect of how it's all going to turn out. We see now through a glass darkly, but then face to face, we're pilgrims. We have enough news to get on the road. But as the great Reformed theologian Bono said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's the humility that we need. A humility that isn't insanity. A humility that isn't foolishness. A humility that doesn't distrust the promises of God. But a humility that realizes that if there is any good news in the world, it's got to come from Him and not from us. So in the next two talks, I'm going to be exploring exploring the ways the triune God opens us up. Finds His way into the little cocoon we have spun for ourselves. Breaks it up calls us out of it, into his world, out of our own, into his world of the new creation, and brings us out of Vanity Fair, where we're flitting from booth to booth, and makes us p- pilgrims on his highway to his holy feet. Thank you.